Welcome to Back in the Grind, a podcast about life, music, people, and the stories that bring us closer. Today we're going to discuss Johnny Hobo and the Freight Trains, the early music of Pat the Bunny, and the question of did it cause more harm or more benefit overall in the folk punk and larger communities. After that, we dive into some prison stories from my experience, we share some funny stuff, and have some serious discussion as well. And we end the episode with a track from Johnny Hobo and the Freight Trains. If you enjoy this discussion and others we had, consider supporting us on Patreon. You'll get some exclusive content, and we have more stuff coming after the new year. If you're interested, check out patreon.com slash backonthegrind. And one other thing I'd like to mention, we didn't talk about in this episode. It completely slipped my mind. But the music of Johnny Hobo and the Freight Trains is streaming on all platforms. When I was locked up in prison, several times people had put that music up without Pat's permission, and I had no idea about it either. When I got out, Pat suggested that I should put the music out and keep all the funds for myself. I really didn't have any interest in this. I had no desire to put the music on streaming platforms, but Pat persuaded me and I didn't feel comfortable keeping the funds for myself either. So far, I've checked it once. I've taken out about $1,000 to support touring bands. My plan moving forward is just to put all the funds generated from the streaming back into the folk punk and larger DIY music community in general. So check out Johnny Hobo and the Freight Trains on any streaming platform and you'll be supporting those efforts. Enjoy this episode. Pepe, how are you doing today? Doing good, Well, It's nice to have you back on here. Seems like it's been a little while since you and I did an episode, but I guess it wasn't. I guess we just haven't talked since the last one, really. Yeah, I think that's probably why it feels like yeah. it's been a minute. But it is nice to see your face. Yeah, nice to see your face, too. So today, we decided to talk about Johnny Hobo and the Freight Trains, formerly Pat the Bunny's music project. Was it his first music project? It was his first legitimate music project. Mm-hmm. First thing where he was really releasing stuff. Yeah. A question has come up. It's a question multiple people have asked, or it's a question that's been around for a while, is the Johnny Hobo and the Freight Trains music. Did it, on the whole, do more harm than good? We're going to unpack that question a little bit. And Pepe, could you, for any listeners who haven't heard our other episodes and might not know your background and, and context with Pat, could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. He had said to me at one point, I was the first person that helped him understand that anyone would even be interested in his music. And if it wasn't for that in my role and connection with him, he's not sure what he ever would have done with his music. I was the first person to release recordings of Pat's music under Johnny Hobo and the Freight Trains. I was the first person to like book him to perform out of his hometown. So we have a lot of history. And yeah, people can listen into our earlier episodes for some of that. What was one of the first things that drew you to his music? He didn't hold back on his emotions, what he was going through in life and what he was dealing with. And it was a very raw, open honesty that was presented. And 
there was a sense of hopelessness in his music. And it was like, you know, man, I can connect to that because I, you know, there was a, a time for me, I was working all the time. I was working 50 hours or more a week. The time when I first met Pat, I had three kids. So I was barely scraping by financially, really struggling. And I just didn't have much hope. It, it just it felt like I was stuck in this place. And granted, the sense of hopelessness that Pat was singing about was coming from a very different place. I mean, Pat didn't have kids. He was a young teenager himself when I met him. But just there was that connection, you know, that like, oh, you're hopeless. I'm hopeless. Yeah, I can totally see how that just authenticity and being able to identify with such a overwhelming emotion would draw you in. So what about Pat's music is problematic? Why would anyone say that it's possible his music did more harm than good? Well, it's very pro-drug. Early Johnny Hope on the Freight Trains, it was really advocating, in a sense, using drugs to to deal with that sense of hopelessness. Almost every song, I think every song was just encouraging drug use in one way or another. I mean, he wasn't directly saying you should go out and use drugs, but every song was saying how he was regularly using drugs as a way of existing in the world. And it was viewed as not a problem. It was viewed as a worthwhile pursuit in a sense. Have you ever talked to anyone who has talked about the music leading them to drugs or not get help or uh, anything along those lines in your personal experience? The music kind of even talks about that stuff. Ha- has a line where he's talking about this one's for every friend who went to rehab. I'll miss doing lines with you in the park after night. You know, and he's saying he he's regretting the fact that people went to rehab. So I could see how people could find that problematic, um, especially someone who perhaps you know made it through an addiction and is now hearing that music. When I met Pat and when I was booking shows with Pat, I can only speak to my perspective. And like I said, I was working all the time. So it wasn't like I was able to leave and go to these other shows with Pat. When I was with Pat, it was shows that I had booked in Connecticut. And those shows were very much full of people who were connecting to Pat's music for reasons other than the drug references and and the drug, the pro-drug uh, lyrics. And, you know, I actually called Pat just briefly to talk to him before he did this episode. And I asked him his thoughts on this. And he acknowledged the same thing that it seemed like a lot of the people or all the people coming from like the DLI Bandit circle back then were connecting to his music on a different level. But what I saw when I was setting up shows and interacting with Pat in Connecticut specifically was a lot of people coming together. We were having like every show was almost like a potluck. So we were sharing food. People were coming together. We would have screenings of documentaries before the show sometimes. You know, there was a lot of positive things happening. People were setting up info shops and and the the drug lyricism of Pat's was kind of a backdrop to what was happening around Pat and his music at that time. At least for the DIY bandits and the folks that were attending our shows. Yeah. So it felt like at those shows, at least it wasn't all about drugs. 
but they were in the background still. So I never saw, I should say the, his lyrics were in the background. It seemed like the drug lyrics. Right. So yes, not drugs. Like I've never seen people getting, getting high or fucked up or drinking at a show. Uh, I was talking to Lee, my wife, we were walking at the swamp that I love so much earlier today. And I just asked her what her memories were of that time period. And she said the same thing that, you know, for her, the connection was that sense of hopelessness, right? That she was able to connect on, but she never felt an urge to go use drugs. Like she didn't even drink at the time. Um, and I asked her about, well, you were going to Vermont. That's where Pat used to live. And he would have shows up there. And I've been to a few, but it was really hard for me to to leave Connecticut, like I said. So I asked her, was there a difference there in those shows versus shows that were happening back here? And, you know, she was saying, no, not really. Like Pat had thrown some festivals, uh, you know, Wild Fest was one of them and Brat Fest. And she was saying she doesn't even really remember like seeing open drug use at these festivals. I mean, there was people who were drunk, you know, and, and that happened. But that happens, I think at shows in general. I think overall, in, in real life, I guess is a good way to put this, that there wasn't like you had to drink from Pat's whiskey bottle if you were attending the show. Like that wasn't a requirement. Mm -hmm. I think that makes a lot of sense in, in many ways that people, it sounds like we're really coming together for some of the reasons you first got interested in Pat's music, the open, honest struggle, the rawness, the uh, just willingness to put yourself out there and not hold back emotion. And speaking as someone who's experienced addiction, for me, it was pretty frequent that I would be doing my addictive behaviors and drinking and stuff alone or 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 secretly, or actually not wanting people to see me doing that. <laughs> so, you know, in, in some sense, it could make sense why they maybe weren't even very visible, even if there were people there who were struggling with the same things Pat was struggling with when it comes to addiction. Yeah, this gets to something I was kind of referencing when I said in real life. And when I called Pat, he kind of mentioned this too. He brought up the point that maybe some kid sitting alone in their bedroom finding that music on the internet might have a different response to it than someone who's gathering with a group of people, you know, where it's a potluck and we're we're talking and engaging and sharing ideas about how to somewhat build a community, even if in the backdrop of that was these lyrics going on. So I think that's a valid point that Pat brought up some lonely teenager might find that and relate to that in a way where there's no other people around because they're just listening to it online to give them any other feedback. And they might just think, well, this is what I'm going to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm not aware of that happening, but you know, it's a point that Pat brought up and I, I thought that really makes sense, you know, and, and it connects to what you were saying, like when using substances was often something you did uh, alone. Right. I'm, Reflecting now, I'm thinking about what if I had discovered Johnny Hobo and the Freight Trains when I was in the midst of my addiction? Would, have, would it have amplified it? Would it have been, been neutral? And one of the things that I think about is people use drugs for a lot of different reasons. Part of me wonders how likely it actually is for someone's music to be the cause of addiction or 
how likely it is to exacerbate it? I generally don't know the answer. I think the answer could be yes, it could be no, it could be somewhere in the middle. But just because there are so many other factors that can impact it or do impact it, I feel like in my imagination, it would be unlikely that someone's drug use was only tied to listening to a certain music. Because I also think part of the reason anyone might resonate with music about drugs is maybe because they're already doing drugs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. And this is interesting because the time period within the folk punk scene, things were a little different back then. As far as I'm aware of, there really wasn't anyone like Johnny Hobart of Freight Trains presenting music like that like lyrically and that type of that style of music has it was mimicked and and repeated in the folk punk world quite a bit up to this present moment so i wonder how much pat i mean obviously he had a major influence in that and that's an interesting thing to consider mm. how pat feels about that and sometimes i question my role in that since i released mm. um, that music because that's not the message that I generally want to put forth, right? The message that he was. Totally. Yeah, you know, that makes a lot of sense because, you know, you could think about how the genre slash community of folk punk does have this reputation of being unhoused people addicted to drugs. And you could see how that stereotype would come about because of music, like Pat's music. So then you know, I'm kind of walking back my previous statement, because if that is the music you're listening to, and it's the music your friends are listening to, there's actually a lot of power in music creating identity. So if this music is part of my identity, especially as an impressionable young person, and if my friends like this music too, then I could see that as definitely a potential means of perpetuating addiction or introducing addiction. So um, I think it's a complex issue that would be actually very hard to tangibly measure. I have to agree 100%. I mean, I, I think it's very valid what you just said. I, I think it would be dishonest to say if his music never contributed to perpetuating addiction. I would have to honestly say I, I think it did. And you know, maybe it didn't create start somebody's addiction, but it definitely uh, contributed to this mindset and made it feel normalized and comfortable. And even, I guess we could say he glorified it through his lyrics. And it's also hard to know, it's hard to know when or if that could be genuinely helpful for someone. If someone is in a place where maybe they're really not ready to quit drinking. Maybe it's the only thing keeping them alive because otherwise they wouldn't want to be alive. And they find music like that that says, oh, wow, look, other people use drugs and alcohol the way I do. I'm not alone in this, actually. And maybe that music could serve as a tool for helping them eventually get to a place where they're ready to find recovery. I could see that as a possible scenario too. Pepe, I know you mentioned that as you were starting to release Pat's music and holding these shows, you also had three kids. So what was it like to be a father and be doing what you were doing? I involved my kids in a lot of this stuff. You know, I would, they were coming to Pat's shows. 
the first kids that ever attended Johnny Lobo shows were my kids. My oldest was seven at the time. So the other kids were uh, two and four years younger. So they might not remember as much early on. But my seven-year-old son, the first time he attended a show and, and Pat had performed, we had set up in the woods and my son had to sing along to every song and Pat came up to me and he thought it was really cool. Like the seven year old is like singing his music at the time. It didn't really bother me. I had, you know, my son was seven. I didn't think like my son was going to be going out and finding hardcore drugs. I had a good relationship with my kids. So as a father at that time, actually what worried me was I couldn't imagine. I remember saying, what would it be like if one of our kids became a teenager and was singing these songs, how would we deal with that as parents? And then I, I thought about, wow, what do Pat's parents think when they hear this music? Like I related to it being a, a parent, wondering what Pat's parents had thought, and I'm sure they've heard the music. And that was a big concern I had that not so much that my kids ended up there, but like, just how do you deal with that as a parent? Because his music was so emotionally painful and openly, you know, explaining his addiction. Mm. And that's scary to hear as a parent. Yeah, I can definitely see how that would have come about. I mean, that just makes sense. Eventually, I did befriend Pat's parents and his mom and I actually spoke quite a bit when he went to rehab. That's when we became friends. And I don't know, it was interesting. I, you know, she had reached out to me. I had explained to her that I never once directly contributed to Pat's addiction, never given him drugs or gotten high with him or anything like that. When Pat was in rehab, it was a one-year program. He was not allowed to speak to anybody other than immediate family. So I lost all communication with him. So I spoke to him through his mom and his mom and I would email regularly back and forth and she would share messages with Pat. But it was quite the experience. I'm not going to get into the details that's for Pat and his mom to share, but I mean, it was a very difficult time, even just the, the point of him getting to where he could go to rehab. So if we're going to, you know, talk about harm that Pat's music cost, I, I think a big part of it, I mean, there was a lot of harm for him directly in his family, a lot of struggle, a lot of pain. And the other harm I think that was caused, and it wasn't like Pat's music, it was just more his addiction. Like Pat stole from me. Pat really I became really disillusioned at one point because I thought Pat and I were working towards something together, right? And we had this idea we were raising money for uh, to get a, a community bus, a bus that would kind of be used for touring musicians, but it would also like pick up people and carry them around and take them to different places. I had this idea where I was starting the Bandits. He was trying to put forth his music. We were helping each other do that. We had this shared vision. We were trying to raise money for this bus. And then Pat goes and steals the money and uses it to get high. And for me, that really shattered my whole conception of the friendship. I'm like, wait, if I thought something different was going on, did everything else I thought about Pat, could that all be incorrect too? And it really made me question like the reality of our friendship. And it was a pretty hurtful place for me. You know, it was a very important thing in my life to be working with Pat. Like I said, I was in that place where I felt a lot of misery and hopelessness because I was just stuck working this shit end job. And I had something that I was like looking forward to doing and, and a project that I was dedicating all my free time to. And here comes Pat and he kind of throws all that away. And it really disillusioned me and it made me question our friendship for quite some time. And he paid you back. 
He did. He paid me back. It was, it took some time. Um, Pat went to rehab, like I said. Uh, he did a one-year program, and I know he told me I was the only person from his circle that, other than his immediate family, that was reaching out and trying to see how he was doing. Uh, and he really, I think, valued that and respected that. And I was still, you know, hurt and upset that he betrayed me. And when he got out, he had reached out to me. We communicated some, and he said he's starting a new band, and he wanted to know if I would help put it out on my label. Um, and the new band was at this time Ramshackle Glory. And traditionally, the way we did things was, you know, Pat would send the music to me, and I would send everything to the presses and get it pressed. And this time, he had said he wanted to handle that on his end, but he had no funding. And if I would fund it and he can handle like the layout and design and people, and he wanted me to send him like $2,000 or whatever it was. And I was very uncomfortable with that. You know, the last time Pat had, you know, uh, he stole over a thousand dollars from me and used it for drugs. And here he is now asking for two grand to put out this album. I almost didn't do it. I, I took some time to think about it. I almost called his mom to ask her what she had thought. But through another discussion with Pat, I did send him the money and felt like things would go well. And thankfully it did. And uh, the Ramshackle Glory album was put out. But yeah, it was that was part of, you know, Pat and I rebuilding our trust after that betrayal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And it was difficult. Look, I, I mean, I remember calling Pat an asshole. And, you know, Pat did, like I said, he caused harm for a lot of people in his immediate family. Uh, directly for me, I could speak of, you know, and, and perhaps some other people around him. But it also taught me some lessons. I questioned, like I said, like being a parent, like what did Pat's parents think when they hear this music? I never once did anything though. Like hearing him thinking that like, you know, this whole time, but never once like doing anything to express that concern to Pat. That really made me think about, you know, I ended up telling him I was an asshole too after that. First, I called him an asshole. Then I called myself one for never showing up in a way that at least making an attempt, you know, I showed up once he went to rehab on his own to say, hey, I'm still here. I'm your friend. But mm. I never showed up in a way to offer support that looking back, I wish I did things differently. Mm. Well, I think it's uh, definitely a testament to your friendship and each of your ability and willingness to trust the other person, even when things aren't perfect and we made mistakes. And I think it's a beautiful illustration of how to have grace in a friendship because you do care about a person, even if you don't show up in a perfect way all the time or even actively cause harm. Uh, but how do you overcome that and, and reconcile? Which is, it's wonderful that you all have been able to do that and that your friendship is so strong. So when I reached out to Pat, actually, he had said something. Not it wasn't about our friendship, but when I asked him about his early music and how it is, uh, how if he feels it did more harm than good, he said something very similar about the trajectory of his music overall. And he said he feels that if you listen to his music as a whole, he feels like it's done more good overall because it shows that story of someone starting in that place, like Johnny Hill on the freight trains. Then you hear in Wingnut Dishwasher, Wingnut Dishwashers Union, the desire to get sober. And then you have Ramshackle Glory and his solo music where he did become sober. And he said if just Johnny Hobo was the only music ever put out, he probably would have felt it done more harm than good. That makes total sense to me. That's kind of, I mean, I would say that too. 
I'm curious, and this is probably true for you and other folks. I know quite a few other folks. What was the first music of Pat's that you heard? Do you remember what band or was it his solo stuff? Mm. You know, that's a good question. I, I remember very specifically the drive that I took with my friend Olivia, who eventually became my bandmate in Junkyard Fort. But she was introducing me to folk punk music I, I hadn't listened to before. And I was just actually getting into folk punk, even though I had known about Days and Days for a long time. What I heard first was Ramshackle Glory. And it was probably your heart is a muscle the size of your fist. But it definitely wasn't Johnny Hobo. And Pat and I briefly talked about that, how it seems a lot of people find his music nowadays in reverse order, right? They're finding Pat Solo stuff and then Ramshackle and then Wingnut the Dishwashers Union and then Johnny Hobo. And we're just, you know, it was just an interesting thing. I wonder how his story plays out for people hearing it in the reverse order, you know, versus like, you know, myself who, heard it or saw it play out in in the uh, chronological order. Yeah, that's interesting to think about. A it feels to me like we're in a phase or season of folk punk where a lot of folks who were singing about getting messed up are at the point now where they're trying to get sober or have gotten sober. And it feels to me almost like more the norm to interact with a folk punk band who is sober trying to get sober as opposed to a folk punk band who is just fully all in on substance use. Mm-hmm. I think that Pat's music is interesting this because when his music came out at the time, I already said there wasn't really anyone performing music like that. And the folk punk community, you largely had back then uh, Planet X Records, which was like an icon in the folk punk community back then. And that was often referred to as like the nerdy folk punk people. And, you know, not in like a derogatory way. It was just that's what it was referred to. And then Pat came along and was doing something very different. And you know, that even led to complications with uh, the label. I mean, we've had people refuse to work with myself and the other DIY bandits and had said we were all a bunch of uh, drug addicted, apolitical nihilists. And, you know, no one in a DIY bandits, uh, you know, no one in our core group ever struggled with addiction. No one was using substances at the time. I mean, I didn't even eat meat back then. Um, you know, we, we kind of joke because after I met Pat, I started to eat meat. I had no reason to do it. Pat, it was, I had gotten Lyme disease and for health reasons, it was beneficial. But we made these stickers, you know, that said Johnny Hobo and the Freight Trains made me eat meat. And I guess back then we were kind of, in a sense, poking fun at this idea that his music was harmful. I didn't really think of it like that, but I think that was the point right behind that sticker was saying like, oh, his music is causing me to do these quote unquote negative things. And we were kind of uh, poking fun at that. And I mean, it's, for me, and a lot of people might not agree with this, but I am very pro-speech. I respect anyone's right to say what they want, but I don't necessarily respect what they say. The The reason I am, I value that so much is because it allows us to have conversations and discussions to figure out who we are as people. 
even if someone's saying something I don't like, we need to figure out how to talk about those things because it helps me better understand who I am. It helps me better understand how to offer something different than what's being said. And I wasn't, you know, trying to offer something different than what Pat was doing. I was, yeah, my, my overall point is as someone who didn't use substances and I didn't have a problem with him saying those things, I guess is my point. And, you know, back to what Pat said, his overall story, it's a great redemption story. You know, it shows that there is a path forward after you make mistakes, after you fuck up, after you hurt people, there is a path forward. And I think that's really the value of Pat's music as a whole. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. So do you have anything else you want to add to this topic about Pat's early music or his music as a whole? No. Yeah, nothing comes to mind immediately. Okay. So you know what I'll do? I'll put up on, if you're listening on Spotify, we'll actually put up a little survey where you can uh, pick yes or no if Pat's music presented more harm or more good. So yeah, check it out if you're on Spotify, look in the show notes, and we'll have the question up there and you can answer. So Pepe, something we've talked quite a bit about on this podcast, but have yet to really dive into is your experience in prison. I thought it might be nice to just have a conversation about some of your experiences in there. Yeah, absolutely. It's something I do want to share more of, and i open to that 100%. Great. So do you have any funny, weird, entertaining stories from while you were in there? Yeah, I shared a few of them on my blog, but there's one that I was writing while I was in there. I never uh, finished it and shared it. I was just going to call it haircuts. Preface is that in my life, I've gotten plenty of weird haircuts. Not necessarily style, but like I would just get haircuts in the most random places. Like I would be in the middle of a courtyard of some building where my friend from back in the day, DIY Bandits, Brian Tight Pants, was giving me a haircut. People walking all around. There's some weirdos and punks hanging out watching the haircut while they're just courtyard of a building. Or, you know, I, I, I met someone in New York and later that day they're cutting my hair in Central Park. Or I used to let my kids cut my hair when they were young and there would be like long hair and then short hair and bald spots. And I'd be like, that's a great cut. And I'd leave it like that for a few days and they'd, they'd always be happy that, about that. So I always had these like weird haircuts. So in prison, COVID had hit and they closed down the barbershop. It was a barbershop, very much like a, a regular barbershop. You know, we didn't have everything, but it had a lot of the official like barbershop tools. So, and it had ways to clean uh, the clippers and things in there. Well, they shut that down and the Spanish guys pretty much ran the barbershop. I mean, there was barbers for every race, but the Spanish guys like had it on lockdown. Like that was their thing, the barbershop. And they also handled most of the, the food was ran by the Spanish guys. And in the beginning of my bid, my bunkie was the head barber, a Spanish guy who happened to be from Connecticut. And somehow he knew I was coming there. I never met the guy in my life. And I guess he had some homies on the outside that gave him word that I was a solid dude. So I got in. He's like, oh, Pepe. And, and the Spanish guys loved that I was like this white dude with the name Pepe. Like They were always excited. They always kind of like hung out with me. And he used to give me free haircuts. Uh, I was very fortunate. Like I said, he was my bunkie. So he hooked me up. Uh, he ended up getting out. And then COVID hit. And like I said, they shut down the barbershop. So basically no one can get a haircut. 
and it was just bad because we had beards, right? <laughs> we had no way of like trimming our beards, really. People's hair was getting long. So the Spanish guys created this black market for haircuts in the prison. Basically, in prison, you can buy items on commissary. It's like the prison store. And sometimes an item will no longer be sold. So if it's a food item, once it's gone, it's gone. Years ago, they used to actually sell battery-operated clippers, like little shavers for your beard. But they have not sold them in the prison for years. So they're very old. There's a few kicking around. And they're like, if you want one, like you're going to have to pay somebody. Like It's going to cost you like 100, 200 bucks for like a, a 15-year-old clipper that like tears your hair out. So there was a couple of those floating around. That's all there was since the barbershop was shut down. These 15-year-old clippers that like, I'll be blunt, like dudes in there would shave their balls with them and stuff. But the Spanish dudes decided to open these black market barbershops, but we had to like not be seen by the guards. So they would do it in the bathrooms. So I remember I was like, all right, I finally broke down. My beard had gotten pretty crazy. My hair was long. I was like, I need to go get a cut. And like, I'll deal with these clippers that who knows have been where over the last 15, 20 years. And I remember this kid, Aponte, he was like kind of like one of the main barbers, the Spanish dudes. I go up to him and I said, Aponte, I need to get a cut. And he's like, all right. It's like, tomorrow, meet me in the bathroom, three o'clock, bring three fish. And fish was how we paid for, we had these packs of fish that uh, they were mackerel. We called them max for short. That was our currency in there. And I said, okay. And I'm walking away and he goes, bring your own chair. So I had to like, you know, we had these like little chairs next to our bunks that we would uh, have to sit in because we weren't allowed to sit in our bunks during the day. So we could only sit in a chair. So we had to bring our own chair. So the next day comes, it's three o'clock. I'm bringing my chair and my three packs of fish to the bathroom. And I go in there and there's this guy, this big Spanish guy, his name is Flex. And he's on the ground in the bathroom working out because they had also banned working out during COVID. So we had to like do everything like hidden in these, in the bathroom. So he's like doing push-ups in the bathroom, this big giant dude named Flex. And he's like, and he's like breathing heavy. He's like, and he's like just doing this crazy workout. And like, I put my chair down next to him and I'm like, okay. And then like a Ponte walks in and he moves my chair and it's like right in front of the urinals. So I'm sitting there facing the urinals and dudes are coming in and just taking a piss like a foot and a half in front of me. And when the Spanish guys would cut hair, it was like a big communal thing. Like the, the, the community would come out. So like, you know, everyone got word like, oh, you know, Aponte's given a haircut. So then like five Spanish dudes come in to watch him give me a haircut in the bathroom in front of the urinals while Flex is there <laughs> doing his workout. You know? And we actually had a little, um, it's like an amplifier or a speaker because we used to have to give these presentations for this group we were in we had to get up in front of all the inmates and talk about you know how we were shitty people like they just want us to say like you know our parents only loved us because we paid their light bill with drug money like we just have to say this really crazy stuff but occasionally the staff would forget to lock up the speaker the amplifier so these guys would get a hold of it and they would bring it into the bathroom and we had uh, these like MP3 players we could buy. So they brought into the bathroom, they hooked up their MP3 player and they're playing like the Spanish music. And, you know, Ponte is cutting my hair. There's people peeing right in front of me and Flex is doing his workout in the corner. <laughs> and then this other kid comes in, this younger Spanish kid, he's like a small thing kid and he loved the music. So he steps in front of me 
like right in front of the urinal and in between me. And he starts dancing. And he's like like half a foot in front of me. And he's like dancing. And I'm just sitting there in this chair getting my hair cut in the bathroom. And it was like these Spanish guys blasted the music. And Flex is doing his crazy workout in front of the stalls. And this guy's dancing in front of me. And he's getting hot because he's dancing. And you know the, the music is getting faster. And he's dancing faster. So then he takes off his shirt because he's so hot. So like I'm sitting there in a chair. This guy's like shirtless dancing in front of me to this music. And I'm just like getting a haircut. And it was probably the strangest haircut I ever got. Like, it was just such a bizarre moment. I was like, like, what do the judges think? Like, do they realize like this is what's happening when they send us to prison? <laughs> it was just such a bizarre moment. And I really thought about everything that had to happen. Like if I was to go back in 2008, the housing economy crashed. My job cut my pay. That's why I started selling weed because I just couldn't afford to take care of my family. And then we ended up getting this airplane and the airplane got busted. And it was just like, I was going to write this whole story about how all these events had to happen in order for me to end up in that place, in that bathroom with all that stuff going on. That is wild. <laughs> I have never heard of anyone getting a haircut quite like yeah. that. And then when I was done, I gave a pinte his three fish and I gave him one extra for a tip. I enjoyed the experience so much. I gave him an extra fish. Well, it sounds like he earned it. You know, I'll give you one other thing real quick. I'll give you one other thing. So this one is absurd. It's like funny and not funny. It's funny to me how absurd these things come up in prison culture that people believe. And when I had first gotten there, there was a guy, he was on his second 10 piece, his second 10 year bid. He was quote unquote, the head of, you. I guess you could say the head janitor. And when you first get to prison, you don't have a job for a while. You have to wait for them to assign you a job. So your first month or two, you're just kind of sitting around during the day doing nothing. And one of the jobs was just to clean the bathrooms. And most people didn't want that job. Like who wants to clean the bathroom? I actually wanted the job because there was a benefit with it. The benefit was you can get what you call it. We had cubes then. So it's basically a cell without a door. And if you take that job, you can get your own cube. You don't have to share it with somebody else. So you have some privacy. So I was very interested in that. Anyway, so I, I went up to the guy who was kind of like the head of that and he can put in a good word with the staff because they'll go to him like, hey, should we give this guy the job or not? So I wanted him to put in a good word for me. And he did. It was like, first he was like, it was just annoying and I didn't want to do it, but I did. He was like, I want you to work for a month before they even hire you and just do it. And so I was like cleaning the bathrooms before like the prison staff even gave me the job and to prove to this guy, like I could do it good. So I, I ended up getting my own cube and I was happy about that. You know, and I was kind of cool with this guy. Like we didn't like, we weren't close friends, but he used to always make these comments to me, you know, it was summertime and the prison commissaries used to sell these flip flops. I never really wore flip-flops, but in prison, it was freaking hot. It was so hot in there. So I'd wear flip-flops and I didn't have socks on. And there was other guys who didn't have socks on either. But this guy would always like make these comments to me like, hey, you need some socks? Like all the time. Like I'd walk by him like, hey, you need some socks? You know, I was like, why is he obsessing over me not having socks? I'm like, I'm not the only one. Like I looked around, other people weren't. Well, one day he was wearing um, these Crocs. They're the ones that have like the holes in them so you can kind of see in them. And he's sitting on a bench outside, actually, with one of my friends. And I walk out and I see he's wearing these Crocs. And I say to him, I could see through the holes in them. And I say, oh, you need some socks? He always said it to me. I thought I'll say it back to him. I didn't think anything of it. And he lost it. He stood up. You fucking cocksucker. He started going 
nuts on me, like screaming. And he was like getting in my face. And, and he's like, you know, if we were in a different place and he's, and I was like, I don't know what your problem is, man. And I just walked away. You know, I was like, you always ask me if I need socks and I walked away. And he, I heard him out there. He was talking to one of my friends who was sitting next to him and he was just talking shit about me. My friend came back later. And this is so ridiculous. And he's like, yeah, you really pissed him off. And I'm like, why? He, I, I forgot to say, he kept saying to me, like, my toes are covered. You can't see my toes. Like and he was, and I was like, well, okay, whatever. And I walked away. My friend explained to me that there's this idea that the big toe, that if, if the guys see your big toe, they can mistake it or think of it as a penis and it can bring out the inner homo in other guys. <laughs> I was like, like, this is like a part of the prison culture. Like some people like, you know, you cannot show your toes because they're scared. It's going to bring out the inner homo. And I was just like, you're the only one who has a problem here. Maybe no one else seems to care. Like maybe, you know, there's something that you have going on that you have to deal with. But it was just such a ridiculous thought to me that people would even think wow. that, you know, I've never heard such a thing, but yeah, it's a part of the prison culture. I will say I did not see the story going in that direction, but it sounds like some serious internalized homophobia for sure. Yeah, yeah that you're right. That was kind of funny and not funny, but definitely odd. Like when you're in there, things that happen, like the haircut or even that, like they're just both two very absurd mm -hmm. stories, right? I mean, who the hell thinks of the big toe? Like, like out in society, you walk around, your big toe is out, and nobody gives a shit. So I had to just laugh at the absurdity of it. I couldn't even take that man serious. So this isn't about prison, but you brought up your nickname, Pepe. And I realize I've never asked you, how did you get the nickname Pepe? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting story. It's funny because... You know, this can even tie back into what I was saying before. Like, I'm very, like, pro-free speech. I would rather people say things I disagree with than them be kept secret and me not know about it. And I remember people were even, some people questioned me having the name Pepe. This was, a, like, quite some time back. But they are like, well, he's a white dude, and is it okay? And, it, you know, they didn't know my story or my history. But um, basically what happened was I worked in the restaurant industry when I was very young. And a lot of Guatemalan people, um, a lot of Mexican people. And I helped a lot of them. A lot of people who had family who were coming here who didn't have housing. They weren't here legally, so they couldn't access housing. Um, I housed a lot of people. I was just helping them on a transition period when they arrived just to have a place to stay. And then go on to where they're going to. And they always forgot my American name. And they just started calling me Pepe. And I asked one day, like, why? And uh, I believe it was one of the Guaman guys. He said, well, that's what you call, like, a comrade or a friend. You just say Pepe. And the name just stuck. And because I worked in a restaurant industry, uh, a couple of them worked there with me. And I had quit my job and went to a new restaurant. And then one of them was there as well. So the name just kept going on and on forever. And at first, because like I said, some people had given me a hard time about it. Like they were saying like it wasn't cool, you know, or that it might have been like cultural appropriation or something. I didn't pick the name. It was given to me. And it's funny. I actually like Pat knows me from quite some time ago. And when you listen to Pat's music, he always refers to me by my real name, Scott, because back then that's how I introduced myself to him because I felt uncomfortable because some people are giving me a hard time. But now I embrace it because 
you know, there's a lot of love behind that name. It was given to me by people who were, were very grateful of the support I offered and, and I embrace it hundred percent nowadays. Wow. Thanks for sharing that. It's, it's great to know the, the backstory. So Pepe, I did have a question. I noticed you were using the term Spanish to describe Latinx votes. And I was wondering why that term, because it's not really the politically correct term to use. Yeah. So this, you know, often has come up uh, when I, when I talk to people about my prison experience, that question has been asked before, or even sometimes people use the terms like they'll say like, well, the blacks run this or the whites run this. And that's, a part of prison culture and same thing, the Spanish, it is, these are terms that are used within the prison culture. And if you were not to speak in that way, like it would be looked upon kind of odd in there. It's interesting in prison, like race plays a very interesting role. I was in a lower level prison. You were allowed to mingle with other races. You didn't have to get permission before you spoke to someone outside of your race. But you know, when I first got there, like someone told me, came up to me, like one of the white guys, he's like, you know, people pay attention to who you hang out with. And that was larger because one of the first people I really befriended was uh, this black guy named Soda, or I ended up giving the name Soda. Um, so there is some like questioning, like, you know, you're kind of supposed to stick with your race. But it's interesting in there because in a sense, it's like people think there's like this tension, but it's almost relieving in there because we can all just talk about like, the different races and it's it's a very comfortable setting i don't know how to explain it like no one is going to be upset you know it, it's expected to understand this race does this and this race does that like this is who is in control of the food so if you want extra food you go to them and like these spaces are respected and even if you've been in there like even like i'll be honest and i'm not the only one who has spoken about this i know there's like some anarchists in prison who talk about this where where you end up talking to racist and and it's just a part of prison, right? It's like, you don't have a choice in there. I won't get into tons of details about that, but like I did talk to some racist people in there who I had respect for in the sense that there were other people who like ran some of the religious services in there and people of all ethnicity would show up. But then when it was just like me and, and this other white guy was running that service, he would say this racist stuff and it kept it a secret. And I had like no respect for that. It was like one of the few times I almost got in a fight because I exposed that in there, right? Mm. And then a lot of the people who were not white stopped going to that service and it got back that the reason was because of me. Mm. You know, I have much more respect for someone who's going to be racist and state it openly than someone who's going to hide it and kind of keep it hidden in the background and making moves based on those thoughts without letting other people know. Yeah, these topics could be difficult to talk about. The prison experience is, in a lot of ways, very similar to life on the outside, but also very different. Very complex, you know, those dynamics. And something that I think is interesting about the way you were describing the racial dynamics in prison is it seems like no one claims to be colorblind. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Whereas outside of that, uh, you have people who say, oh, I don't see color, which is harmful mm -hmm. you know it's it's it perpetuates racism but when you can actually talk about race even if it's difficult to talk about that's one of the first steps to actually dismantling racism but thanks for for sharing your experiences yeah absolutely i hope i offered you know some clarification it's i guess it is a complicated subject but you're right yeah 
it's an interesting thing. Like if you want to talk about food and you want to start a pizza hustle, you know, you have to go, it's like, okay, the rule in there is quote unquote, you have to go talk to the Spanish people, right? You have to go talk to them. Mm-hmm. And it's like relieving though, because you can go up to them and you just have this conversation and there's no tension and, you know, but you're just acknowledging that, yeah, they, they control 99% of the food hustle. And if you want to do something like it has to come through them. Certainly different than outside of those walls. Well, that's the thing. Like I said, it's not awkward. You're expected to go talk to them, right? And there's no trepidation in that sense. So I think that's why in some ways there's a comfort around race in there. And things at a higher level are a little different. I'll speak briefly on this. I didn't go to a higher level. I do want to point out one thing because I'm not saying this is the only reason people divide by race at higher levels. But a lot of times people think it's because of racist tendencies or ideas. But that's not always the case. Often it's simply about safety. Because think if you're in an institution where a riot can pop off, one of the easiest ways to know who's on your side, who you can run to, who's not going to hurt you, is simply by by race, right? If, If there's a riot popping off and there's people of all different races there, you could stay safe by realizing, okay, I'm with this race. I know I'm almost safe, you know, with that person. As opposed to if everyone was just intermingled, it would be so hard to know who's on your side and who's not during a fight, like a riot breaking out. Mm. So it's actually a way to keep people safe. I'm not saying that's all it is, but that is, it's a strategic way to keep people safe in there. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's an often overlooked part of that dynamic. Yeah. I mean, obviously there's mm. problems with racist people in prison. I'm not going to deny that. Uh, Largely the the guards. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm sure they're the most problematic when it comes to that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, in a lot of ways, it makes sense that prison would be so racialized because it's such a racist system to Mm -hmm. begin with. It's almost like how could it not be racialized when it's so systemically affected by the toxicity of racism? You bring up some really interesting points about it's normal for people to want to have a sense of belonging. And it seems like in prison, when everything is taken away from you, there's the option, well, I can spend time with the people who look more like me. And that's like one thing I have, one way I can belong. So who is someone that you met in prison that had a significant impact on you? There was quite a few people in there. You know, I spent about three years there. So you come across quite a bit of people. It's hard to just pick one, but I can say one of the first people I met that had a big impact on me was this guy I just mentioned a little while ago named Soda. His name was Mike. He ended up being called Soda after he befriended me. Uh, He was a, a black guy from the hood in Philly. And when I first started my bid, him and I, we clicked pretty quickly as I mentioned, like some of the white guys came up to me and they're like, people are paying attention to who you hang out with. And I'm assuming that's what they were referencing. But Soda was such a great guy. He was probably the happiest man in prison. That guy always had a smile on his face. He just uplifted you to be around him. But he also had like, you know, he he used to be this thug, like straight out of the hood. And he had this hardness to him that could come out if needed. But him and I clicked rather quickly. His wife was also locked up and he didn't really have much support in there. He wasn't getting any support from the outside, I should say. People who I was fortunate enough 
through the JY Bandits label, uh, Pat's music was put out as a benefit for me. So I was able to get funds for commissary. He didn't have any funds coming in from the outside. And when I met him, his prison hustle was he would like wash dudes dishes. You make food in there and then you just didn't want to clean up. So he would take the dishes into the bathroom and, and wash them for people. And he made, you know, shit money for that. I don't know. He might've made one fish, you know, like one Mac for like a ton of dishes. And I was talking to him, I was saying, man, you got to get a better, a better hustle. His name was Mike. Like I said, so like, Mike, you got to get a better hustle. And we were trying to think of like what to do. And there was already like a store man. So he couldn't do that. A store man is someone who like buys a bunch of items from commissary in excess. And you're not supposed to do that, but they'll keep it in their cube. And then you can go to them when the commissary is only open once a week. So if you run out of something, you go to them and they, they charge you double and you get it. So you couldn't really be a store man because you can't have competition. But I had the job, like I said, where I was cleaning the bathrooms. And as a result of that job, I had access to buckets. I was able to keep buckets in my my cube. And there was an ice machine that we'd get access to several times a day. And I said, you know what, Mike, why don't we use my buckets? We can fill them up with ice from the ice machine. And I'll buy some racks of soda off a commissary. And we can get some milks, cartons from the kitchen, and we can keep them in my buckets. And then you can be the only dude with cold soda on the whole compound, right? Like people can buy a cold soda. And it was a big deal because there's no refrigerators in there. And when you bought a soda, it came warm. That stuff was like a big deal to people. So we did that. We, um, I was allowed to have those buckets in my cube. So I kept ice and sodas in them. And, and basically people would would go to him and pay him their fish and they'd come to me and get their sodas or their milks. And I didn't want anything. I was just letting him keep, you know, everything he made to help him get by better in there. But yeah, and as a result, I started calling him Soda because he was moving more soda than anybody in the prison. And uh, the name just stuck. Everyone in a prison called him Soda. Right on, right on. I'll just say quickly, he was one of the first friends I made in there. And we talked a lot. We We hung out in my bunk and just had a lot of conversations. And early on in my bid, that was important to me to make that connection mm. with somebody and me and him were able to joke. We joked around a lot. So he was, he made me laugh and he had my back. Like I didn't really have much trouble in there, but he was like a big dude who like, you know, he said, anything goes down, like, let me know. And I appreciated him too, because he was like me. Like I'm sure people said to him, like people pay attention to who you're hanging out with. And he didn't give, mm. he didn't give a shit about that. And we even had one other friend who, um, was making pizzas and well, I'm not going to get into that, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, it makes sense that he had, you know, really made a difference for you just having that connection and being a friend in a place that can be so isolating and unfamiliar and traumatic and can make all the difference for sure. Okay. La last question. What were some of the best ways people supported you in that time? I guess before going in while you were in there, and then coming out. And support is difficult before you go in. It's such a weird place to be and your world is turned upside down. In many ways, I was fortunate because I was able to get out on bond and fight my case while I was out. But I spent two and a half years fighting my case, just waiting to know how long I was going to go to prison. That's a very lonely period, actually, because I, I didn't know a single person who was going through what I was going through, except for my co-defendants, but I wasn't allowed to speak to them. So no one can really relate to what it's like. 
And it's, you can't have a conversation where someone can be like, yeah, I know. Like, it's just very lonely. But one of the ways that people supported me was when the time came, like, people packed the courthouse on my sentencing day. I remember the security guard at the courthouse city in New Haven said he's never seen that many people in the courtroom ever. And that was that was a really amazing show of support. You know, I was crying when I was up there talking just because I was talking to the judge and behind me, all my friends were there. And this community, had, people had come in from other states for me. And, you know, just to know that they were still there, because like, I thought I was losing everything. And to see that, like, I didn't lose those people. They were there then. And that obviously was a show of support to say they were going to be there when I got out. While I was in there, I would say the biggest support outside of like immediate family, just talking to me and stuff was the letters I got. Like mail means a lot in there. It just really lets you know you're not forgotten. And that was probably some of the most important things that people did to support me. It let me know I wasn't forgotten. And then secondly, like I remember so many people writing me, whether it was like, you know, someone who was feeling suicidal writing me, or I had several like younger trans kids writing me, or, you know, people who were just getting sober and like they were writing me and I was helping them through these moments and it gave meaning to my life in there too, to know that I was actually contributing on the outside to helping people through moments of their life. That was really important for me to know I could still add value. I wish I had written you while you were in there. Uh, well, I'll, I'll be honest. We talked about this a little on the show and I'll be honest, I probably received more mail than anyone in there. Like I was getting a lot. Um, and it, you know, it was a little overwhelming at times. So, you know, another letter, you know, it just would have been more to add on. Like I'm not complaining, right. but like, you know, it was overwhelming. There was times where I had a lot of mail and it took a while to get back to. Yeah. That made sense. I, I know I would have written you had I talked to you or known mm-hmm. you before mm-hmm. at all, <laughs> but you know, I know, I know you had some, some meaningful exchanges with people you, you hadn't even met. Um, and then, you know, you mentioned getting out. I mean, the support there, honestly, like these projects I'm working on, this podcast, the coffee company, people have been super supportive with that stuff. And I don't think it's simply because I went to prison. Uh, you know, I've for 20 some odd years, I've kind of dedicated a lot of my time to the folk punk community and independent music world. And so there's people, you know, who acknowledge that and, and have shown me a lot of thankfulness and said they had a lot of respect for the things I'd done. And that really helped me because, man, after when I got out of prison, like, does someone say, oh, I respect the thing, work you've done? Like, that really helped boost me up because I kind of, I didn't have much respect for myself. Mm-hmm. In a very, I was in a difficult place. So that was very nice mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I just, I really appreciate everyone who reaches out to the podcast. And, you know, we just had uh, a great message come in from someone talking about the procrastination episode. And I'm just really glad that we have the ability to have these conversations with each other and offer it to other people. And it seems like people are finding value in what we're doing. That's great to hear. Well, I think it's about time to wrap it up. Thank you everyone so much for tuning in and listening again. We appreciate your support and thank you Pepe for, for sharing with us today. Yeah, you're welcome. Well, it's always a pleasure to be doing this with you. And again, if you're on Spotify, we'll leave a question up there about Johnny Hope and the freight trains. And we'll end here with whiskey is my kind of lullaby. One, two, three, one, two, three.
I was a loner until there were no friends left. And before someone offered me drugs, you know, I was straight edge. And everyone's quit till you offer them a cigarette. Before we learn our lesson, let's see how bad things can get. And I'll drink myself to death, or at least I'll drink myself to sleep. Chain smoke my way through the gaps in between my aspirations and my apathy. As we drive past the last exit to home, I am waving goodbye and I might be sleeping in the ditch tonight, but it's alright, cause whiskey is my kind of lullaby. I was sober all morning Till I woke up this afternoon And before someone offered me a job You know I was gonna get one soon And everyone in this town sleeps Till the calendar collides with June before the booze wears off, let's take another shot or two. And I'll drink myself to death, or at least I'll drink myself to sleep. Chain smoke my way through the gaps in between my aspirations and my apathy as we drive past. The last exit to home, I am waving goodbye And I might be sleeping in the ditch tonight But it's alright, cause whiskey is my kind of 